Welcome to Take the Lead Radio with Dr. Diane Hamilton, where she interviews some of the most successful leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, speakers, and other individuals who will inspire you to take the lead in your career and personal life. And now, here is Dr. Diane Hamilton. Welcome to Take the Lead Radio. This is Dr. Diane Hamilton, and I'm so glad you joined us today because we have Frederic Fabricius, who is a neuroscientist, keynote speaker, and award-winning author. I'm so excited to talk to her about her book, The Leading Brain. So stay tuned, and we'll be back right after this. Are you interested in finding out more about how HR professionals or leadership consultants can become certified to give the groundbreaking new Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The certification program will provide the ability to administer the assessment at reduced rates. Participants will learn how to interpret the results of the CCI, as well as how to deliver an innovation plan workshop designed to improve curiosity, engagement, innovation, and productivity. To find out more, go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Frederica Fabricius, who is a neuroscientist, keynote speaker, award-winning author. She was trained at the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research and is an alumna of McKinsey and Company. She works with Fortune 500 companies around the globe to transform how they think, innovate, and navigate change. She's also the lead author of the book, The Leading Brain, Neuroscience Hacks to Work Smarter, Better, Happier. It's so nice to have you here. Hi, Diane. Thank you. Oh, I was looking forward to this. You're welcome. I chatted with Cosmo Turo, Turo who, t- uh, who told me, I guess we're both on the same speaker bureau together, and he was uh, telling me how how incredible you were, and I thought, oh, I want to have you on the show because... Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I'm grateful that Cosimo made the connection. Oh, so yeah. I could also check out your work, so well, it's been a mutual um, discovery, I would say. Well, you know, we, we both are interested in some of the same things because I'm very interested in how behaviors impact innovation, engagement, and, you know, and all my work was in curiosity and perception, which yeah. ties back to the brain and neuroscience, of course. Exactly. <laughs> so I want to hear a little backstory on you, uh, just because, I mean, that's quite an impressive background you have. Uh, I'm fascinated by what you do now, but what led to that? Well, here's how it was. Originally, I was always a very curious person. I still am, you know, and I was always triggered by the question, why do people behave the way they do? Like, I just want to know, you know, if two people are fighting, I want to understand why exactly those two don't get along. You know, if two people fall in love, I want to know why those two and not just somebody else. So I've always been triggered by that idea. And I think the answer can be found in the brain. So I thought if I understand the brain, then I can understand people and not just what they do, but why they do it. So, so that was my first step. I always wanted to become like a university professor, you know, a scientist. Mm -hmm. And then once I was in the laboratory, I became so frustrated. You know, I was like (laughs) all day long in the laboratory with two monkeys who tried to bite me and I never met any real people. So I felt like, okay, I'm learning a lot about the brain. Great. But I'm not making the world a better place. I'm not understanding people any better. I'm just 
kind of locked in here. So I felt like I had to break free. So I joined McKinsey instead. And that was a bit of a weird choice because as a psychologist, I had zero understanding of the marketplace and business, you know, and, and so it made it even more intriguing for me to see what's going on, you know, in big companies. And what puzzled me was that I discovered that everything I know about the brain is not applied in the workplace, or at least it wasn't when I started out. And I felt like people are not sleeping, people don't trust each other, there's a lot of inefficiency, people never move, and we know that exercise is important for the brain. So I felt that things could improve so much if people only learned a bit more about the brain. And here I am, you know, that's my new, not so new mission, but that's what I discovered about 10 years ago, that that's what I want to do. Well, you know, I, I think what you've done is really fascinating because that's what I always think when I watch um, Big Bang Theory here, which is a television show here, they have a, a scientist, Amy Farrah Fowler, who she cuts apart the brain and that's her whole job. And I always thought of all the characters on that show that I thought what she does is the most interesting. And, but then again, like you, I would not wanna be stuck in a lab with monkeys and, and some of that. So it, it's a challenge to know how to study this. I've had a lot of great psychologists on the show, Albert Bandura for one, <laughs> which was amazing. Yeah. And, um, you know, you think about, what leads to behavior? I, I, it motivated me when I wrote about curiosity to find out about, um, you know, what stops people from being curious. And, you know, the, the Max Planck Institute actually coined the term, uh, the curiosity gene. Did you have any <laughs> thing to do with that when you were researching? No, no, I'm not. I, unfortunately, I wish I could take credit now, but, uh, I, I studied different things. Uh -huh. But of course, you know, curiosity is linked to, for example, the dopamine system in the brain, you know, right. it's not everybody is equally curious. And I think it's very hard to make somebody who really lacks interest in, interested in something. It's, it's better to use natural innate abilities and make them stronger and yeah. foster environments where people keep their curiosity. Well, you know, I found there are four things that inhibited curiosity and they were fear assumptions which is really that voice in your head that tells you you're not gonna be interested or whatever and yeah. technology over and under utilization of it and um, environment just people around us and how much what they say and what they do impacts us um, of course yeah but, yeah but you know you mentioned uh neurochemicals like uh, you know dopamine and, and i noticed you you focus a lot on some of those things and i think it's really interesting because you hear a lot about dopamine serotonin you hear a lot about some of these things. And I remember I was a pharmaceutical rep for 15 years. So we had to study the <laughs> and all the things that I've since forgotten. But um, neurotransmitters are a big part of what makes us our behaviors, right? Of course. And you know, neurotransmitters to a certain degree shape our personality. So it's so interesting, you know, some people have a more active dopamine system, so they're curious and energetic and always want to learn about the next new thing, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and other people, for example, have an active serotonin system and they are more meticulous, detail oriented, risk averse, but in, you know, in a positive way, because you don't want everybody jumping off a cliff and, you know, <laughs> so it's also good to have these different traits. 
and people, you know, differ in their genetic makeup. And I think it's important to, to be aware of these differences because otherwise it's so easy to become frustrated by people who are different from ourselves. Like, for example, the other day I had a client and, you know, she wanted to fact check, not, not fact check, that's the wrong word, but she wanted to remove all of the jokes of my script, of my keynote, because oh. she was afraid that they could be misunderstood. And I assure you, there was nothing racist or sexist or really offensive. It was really innocent little jokes to make people and feel entertained. Yeah. And she was so risk averse. Oh, what if they don't understand it? You know, and at first I was really thinking like, oh my God, you know, leave me alone. And then I was thinking, of course, it's a serotonin, you know, she's right. just making sure nothing goes wrong. We need people who check those things. It's okay. Not everybody. So I think it, it helps us to actually have more appreciation for other people's behavior when it's not exactly the same approach we would have to things. What was it? I noticed you called it uh, dopamine, the Kim Kardashian of neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> but something simplistic like that, that she would stop you know keep well, tell me a joke that she had a problem well one of the jokes I had so here it is you know it was during you know the lockdown and the pandemic and oh, okay. people were really frustrated and research shows that some people are really lonely and some of their associates it's a big um, consulting company are really lonely you know they're stuck at home and I I said you know I cannot tell you to go out and meet people you know then that's just not something I can tell people to do at the moment right. but here's something that does work and that people in Iceland do they go and hug trees and I'm serious about this apparently when you hug a tree you release oxytocin oh. which gives you that feeling of bonding and love and you know trust and and well-being and you release dopamine which gives you a real boost you know of motivation and innovation and feeling great and so apparently whether you hug a tree or a pet or a human I wouldn't say it's the same, but neurochemically speaking, it triggers some of the same responses. So when you're really, I mean, imagine, I mean, I have five kids. So being locked down with them, I had didn't, my challenge was not that I was lonely. Okay. <laughs> so, but for yeah. some other people, imagine you're single and you're in a city where they really, you cannot leave even the house for an hour, you know, all over the world, the rules have been very diverse. And some people, I know one person in India that I work with for some virtual conferences, and he's been locked into his home for a month by himself. I would recommend hugging a tree rather than killing yourself. You know, I, I mean, I'm a bit right. Of course, it won't solve your loneliness, but maybe you should get a cat or a dog or find some living being you can connect to. And she said, we cannot tell people to hug a tree. And I said, well, you know, people are going to see it as a joke and it's going to be a bit uh, of a curiosity uh -huh. that people in Iceland have been oh. doing it for real and the authorities. So it's more a I, little bit of... That's so benign. I'm surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, so she said, no, we cannot tell this. And then I had, um, yeah, I think, I, for example, I, I had the intention of starting off the session with saying, you know, does your boss think that now that you're working from home, you're just lie, laying on the co couch and eating chips all day and watching Netflix? Uh -huh. Or 
does your boss really believe you're working? Because, you know, research shows that people work 20% more than before. So all of these concerns that people don't work when working from home, they're just not relevant. But I want to be, you know, because we all know these bosses that try to control people, you know, that don't think you're working if they can't see you. That's right. a real problem. And I wanted to start off with a little bit of a joke. Like, is he a boss like this? And they're, no, we can't say this. What if they have a boss that's like this? And I said, well, then they're going to laugh about it. Right. So well, it, 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 it was this that you were speaking. <laughs> Where was this? Where this was? Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say. I'm no, not I gonna... didn't the company, but I meant the country. I wondered if. Oh, it... oh Europe. But, uh, Europe, you know, okay. even uh, all over the world, I would say like many, many different countries, a big region. And, you know, the interesting thing is that I would say that my client myself mm -hmm. is wonderful. You know, I just think the climate was for a moment so full of it's fear uh -huh. that people didn't know what was okay to say anymore. It became like so extreme that everybody was so paranoid and, and, and really freaked out by the situation that I think they felt like they needed to be 100% sure that nobody could misunderstand anything. And of course, if you do that, you can't open your mouth anymore. Yeah, it's getting to be a lot different of what you can say, what you can't say. But yes. uh, it's a different time. But, you know, I, I think, though, all the things you're talking about to help people um, with those examples are really important. And you you wrote this book, which I find really, you know, a great book. I know you tell stories and, you, you know, you give examples of different things. But I like that you talk about a lot of the... Um, you know, the neurotransmitters and different things right off the bat. There was some of the stuff I was reading because I think we hear a lot about how um, much people uh, need, what you can take this and get more dopamine. You could take this and get more serotonin. You could get this and yeah. Do, and, and I, as you mentioned, we're all different. And when I used to train teams to, in the day when Myers-Briggs was popular, um, we used to, you know, what I found useful about it, even though a lot of people don't look at it as a, that, that great of an instrument, but what I found useful about it at the time was not so much that you found out what you were, but you found out what other people were so that you could see the uh, opposed, you know, the opposite of you, the dichotomies of personalities. And I think that we all expect, you know, that other people are going to think the way we do or be the way we are. And that's why I, I guess I focus on studying on perception um, as well. How much um, is it important that we work on developing our levels of dopamine or our levels of serotonin, or are we just trying to be like other people? And you know what I mean? Is this mm -hmm. something that we should be developing in, in ourselves? Should we try to eat all the foods that give us the most of all this? Or what do you think about that? Such a great question. I think it's both. So first of all, it's always good to keep your dopamine levels up. You know, as we age, they all go down. And, um, you know, it's good to have good dopamine levels because that can prevent dementia. You know, it's good to have good serotonin levels. We know that people who don't have enough um, very often are depressed and that there's a correlation. On. And so, of course, it's good to keep your dopamine levels up with a healthy diet, with exercise, with enough sleep, not too much stress, you know, positive experiences, things that that trigger our brain and that stimulate us. At the same time, 
I think it's important to not try to be someone else, or I think it's much better to have a strength-based approach. And I think that's also something the Maya Bricks people have, even though the tool is a bit under fire, still, I think they were the first to have that idea that everyone is different and we should appreciate and value that. So, and I think that's a very important idea. So for example, if I'm a high dopamine person and I love to do at the spur of the moment and I'm very curious and a bit adventurous, then I should find a work environment where I can be myself, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. where I can foster that. Then you should maybe not become an accountant where, or, you know, I'm not saying a life of an accountant is boring. I'm just saying, you know, then you should find a job where you can travel a lot, where you can experience a lot, where there's a lot of change and flexibility. While if you're more high on serotonin, you might thrive in an environment where you can work without external disruptions mm -hmm. on your idea. You know, many Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize winning scientists, you know, I'm thinking about best selling authors who work on their projects over a longer period without losing focus and interest. So they need an environment where there is no constant, constant disruption. Mm -hmm. Because how can you find the cure for cancer, you know, if your project is changing every three months, you cannot, you know, really do experiments when there is too much disruption and constant change and reorganization. So I think it's important to first of all, understand yourself, and to then seek a work environment that is in line with your strengths. Well, I think that's really interesting. I had uh, Tom Rath on the show, the Strengths Finders guy. Mm -hmm. and I love that. It, yeah, it's fun to look at these different, um, you know, what we're good at, what we could uh, explore. And, you know, I did ask him, you know, do we just avoid our weaknesses? You know, <laughs> he didn't uh, advocate that. But I mean, it's it's looking at the things that you're really good at and focusing on on alignment, like you were saying. And I, I think my my interest is just personality assessing in general was really fascinating to me. I actually wrote a book many years ago with my daughter about the different personality assessments and rats was in there. But um, I, I think that there's so much in the brain that people are trying to, to be, get this peak of performance. And then mm -hmm. I, as a pharmaceutical mm -hmm. rep, I saw, I, I would be like calling on doctors who'd be popping Prozacs and different things to lose weight while I'm talking to them or, you know, wow. <laughs> yeah. things. And, and it's kind of scary what's out there when you see behind the curtain, but you know, are, are we getting people trying so hard that we're running into serotonin syndrome or uh, that, I mean, do we need all of these drugs that people are trying to, to take or can, you know what I mean? Are we expecting yeah. a level that's just not realistic? I, I would never take these drugs. And you, you know why? Because our brain is so much more complex. So for example, when people take selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know, which is an antidepressant, right. then they suppress dopamine activity in the brain and then they can't feel romance anymore and passion and fall in love. And, you know, 
I'm not saying you shouldn't take antidepressant if you're really depressed and this saves your life. Of course, you should take it. Okay. And if you have a medical condition, your doctor tells you to take it, go for it. But personally, I would never take anything that alters my neurotransmitter levels artificially because everything is connected. And I think there's so many wonderful natural ways to enhance your serotonin levels or dopamine levels to give you some examples. For example, if you do something nice for someone else, if you're generous and caring for, you know, helping a person, your serotonin levels go up and makes you feel great. I mean, that's an easy way, or you could go and exercise physically and then your dopamine levels go up. And, you know, what's not to like about it, there's no side effects. It's only positive and it's natural. So, and it's for free. So there's so many things we can do. You know, you can expose yourself to sunlight in the morning and then your serotonin levels go up and then your melatonin is triggered. And so you have less trouble falling asleep in the evening. That's great too. That's much better than taking sleep medication. So there's so many natural ways and I'm very passionate about letting people know about these natural ways because I mean, let's face it, the pharmaceutical industry has a lot of money and a lot of lobbyism. Of course, they're not going to tell us about these natural alternatives. Right. (laughs) It's funny, you know, when I was in pharmaceutical sales, I, I thought what I found fascinating was they would do a study you know, as you and I probably, I, I don't, I haven't seen your peer-reviewed research, but you, as you know, that peer-reviewed yeah. research is, um, you know, you can, you have everybody look at this and, and make sure it's valid and you get the, this research journal yeah. publish you. And then I would have, I would look at the marketing campaign since I'm more a sales marketing person at that time. And I was looking at that going, huh. There was only one line in that entire peer reviewed journal that said this, but then there's an entire marketing campaign, you know what I mean? So it looks yeah. like it does these amazing things, but there was really just one little tiny aspect of it in the research. So some things are really blown up and made great, you know, and by these companies and it, it, it's just, that's just marketing and it's business. And I don't know if a lot of people recognize that. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I, but I'm curious in your research and what you found. What I mean, what is the part? I mean, there's so much to the brain. Is it is it the neurotransmitters? Is it some other aspect? What is your main focus of what you like to focus on? Because uh, there's just so much that mm-hmm. you don't know about. Yeah. Well, I have a very popular framework. It's called Fun, Fear, and Focus. And what it is, it's basically about what you need to do or what you can do in order to do your best work and to feel great. And I think we all want that, especially with the current situation. I think people can need a little boost. And basically what it is, it's about how you can create the perfect mix of or the perfect cocktail of neurochemicals in your brain. So, for example, when you have fun at work. Your brain releases dopamine, it helps you to think better, it helps you to learn better, it helps you to, you know, be more innovative, and it improves your mood and your motivation. So having fun at work is not just nice to have, it's essential. 
And so, of course, then you can think about natural ways to have more fun at work, right? So that's one ingredient. So fun boosts dopamine. The second ingredient is fear. And of course, we don't want to have so much fear that we can't sleep well at night anymore or that we are really stressed out and worried and, and, and unhappy. But what we do want to have is to be slightly over-challenged because right. that's when your brain releases noradrenaline and that helps you to rise to the occasion. So it's like a, you know, like the feeling you have when you take a cold shower and it kicks you awake. So it's like a, like a wake up call for your brain. That's why deadlines are so effective. You know, that's right. why very often we perform better on stage than at rehearsal because we need a little bit of challenge and it should be not too much and not too little. So when we're bored, we can't think straight either. So you don't want to be bored. You don't want to be stressed. You want to be in your sweet zone. Um, so that's fear about. And of course, then you can think about tangible ways, for example, right now with COVID to reduce fear levels, because when we are in fear, we can't develop solutions. And I think we need solutions. We don't need people who are just paralyzed by fear. What we need is to be innovative and resourceful and creative and, and find new ways of, of doing things. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and, and last but not least focus, we're so distracted. We're multitasking, you know, we're constantly hooked to technology and in the end we lose our focus. And that's a problem because our brain needs focus to do our best work. You know, acetylcholine, which is another neurotransmitter is released when we're fully focused. And it's a bit like a spotlight. It highlights your most important thoughts and it leaves everything else in the dark. So what I'm saying is that when you have fun, fear and focus and the right mix of the three, you can be up to five times more productive. You know, I, and I love that because I, I talk about uh, different levels of stress. Actually, I studied emotional intelligence and its impact on performance from my dissertation. And mm -hmm. I, I was looking at it, uh, I used Baron's model because he had stress involved in it. And because I was looking at salespeople, because I really think a certain amount of stress, of course, like a certain amount of fear, it, it, it's a good thing to some extent. Yeah. And I'd like that pushing myself to the level where it's, if you're just if everything's just so easy and it's just boring, you know, you want to have a little bit of a, a, a push, but everybody's perception of what they find challenging or hard, or, you know, you can give two people in the same job position, the same thing. And one person will be done in five seconds and think it's nothing. And the other person freaks out and thinks it's the hardest thing in the world. So I think perception's a really interesting thing to talk about because you know, you look on the internet, everybody goes, is it a blue dress? Is it a gold dress? Why do I see blue? Why do I see gold? Um, but wh why do you think we have such different perceptions of, you know, of uh, the world of what's stressful, what's not, you know, what we mm -hmm. fear? I think it has to do with neurodiversity. So basically, we all have these different neurotransmitters and different brain systems, but some are more active than others. Mm -hmm. So how, you know, we have something that I like to call the stress spectrum. So some people, you know, for example, with a very active dopamine system, they enjoy constant change and a lot of pressure that helps them to, to work better. 
while people with a more active serotonin system, for example, perform better when there's less stress. And also testosterone and estrogen play into that. I mean, not, it's not necessarily a gender thing. It's more because also women have testosterone and men have estrogen, you know, but mm -hmm. depending on which mix you have in your brain and which chemicals shaped your brain architecture, you will react differently to certain situations. To give you one example, I used to have a colleague who loved traveling the world. You know, we were on the road 24-7, five days a week, waking up in a different country or city every morning. And he loved it. And I felt stressed out. Right. And, you know, now many companies would say he was the high performer, I was the low performer, but that's just not true, you know, because I had all the ideas that our workshops were you know, created by and, and, and all of that. And so I just one day I sat him down and I said, listen, I know you love this. I hate it. How can we work together? You know, and then we established ground rules. I said, you know, I'm not going to travel more than three days a week. That's you know, I'm great. not going to yeah. take early morning flights. Um, he loved preparing the presentation the night before I said, I prefer doing it two weeks in advance. And what we did is I prepared it two weeks in advance. I sent it to him, he ignored it. And then he looked at it the night before. And that was fine for both of us, uh -huh. you know? So I think it's important to have a dialogue around these things and not judging others, but allowing the other person to, to work the way they enjoy it and to find your own way how you deliver your best performance because there's you know one no one size fits all well that kind of ties into back to the training we used to do for the mbti for myers-briggs you know the judging versus perceiving the, the you know it's i'm like you i want to do it two weeks early but the people who are more you know perceiving liked the night before kind of thing and that you'll drive each other crazy if you don't <laughs> Yeah. If you're on a team with somebody who's expecting it two weeks ahead and the other person does his best work the night before. But as long as you give somebody a deadline and they meet that, I, you know, I think it's that discussion uh, that has to be had. And I, I, I don't know that everybody um, recognizes how important because the more diverse teams are, the more you have to get along with all these different people, but the more diverse they are, the more interesting that product, the, the, what they come up with. You know, I worked in a company where they gave us the management by strengths personality test, where you would find out if you were, you know, more of a direct person or an extrovert or a, a person who likes to read the manual, you know, kind of person or a slow moving or, and they had these different colors they gave you. So you're either red, green, blue, or yellow. And we had to put our color on our cubicle. So other people knew our preferences for how we like to interact. And part of me thought, you know, it's weird to put people and stereotype them into a box. And then part of me found it helpful so that you didn't go to somebody who wanted data and not give them data, you know, what do yeah. you think about um, th that kind of thing. Do you think that it helps to know what other people are, or do you think you're categorizing them too much and, and trying to put them into a box? Here's what I think. So, you know, if you go to a restaurant, you know, and let's say you're a vegetarian like me, and like, uh, you know, and then you go to the restaurant and they say, you know, 70% of our customers love the meat burger. So we're going to serve it to you because, you know, that's our best bat. Uh -huh. um, 
how happy would you be? So I'd rather right. have people know what I like and then they can deliver that. And, it, you know, it can be myself rather than not talking about these things. And then you get the burger when you would rather have the tofu. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in a work situation, I think it's inevitable to talk about these things. And I think we can do it in a respectful way. We don't have to exploit people's privacy or stereotype them. It's more thing of, you know, what would you like to do more of? What would you like to do less of? You know, which kind of situations put you into flow and which kind of situations stress you out? You cannot guess what other people have in their heads. It's impossible to, as a leader, especially if you're managing many people, it's very hard to know what they want if they don't tell you. Right. So it's, I think it's good to have these open discussions in order to help people feel well at work. It's frustrating when you have to live up to somebody else's expectations. So I'm a big, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, that it's good to do these workshops on diversity and test people and do psychometric tests. Of course, always with the understanding that every person is unique and stereotyping isn't getting us anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it, it's really um, helpful to me. I guess the assessments that I've created are more like, here's your level and here's how you, what's stopping you and here's how you can move forward. Um, but even the assessments like this for MBTI, you're finding out, I think they're helpful more about finding out what the other people are than what you are, because I think you know what you are, who you are. Uh, because right. you, you, you answer to self-assessment. I'm always kind of I think it's kind of entertaining to me that when people get their personal assessment back that they answered the questions and they're surprised by the results, because <laughs> <laughs> you kind of know who you are, I would think, who answered the questions. But um, I, I, um, what was interesting about uh, you is I also is that you were fluent in six languages and my, my daughter um, can speak, I think, four, sometimes a little bit of a five languages. And that's an interesting quality. Um, now, what part of the brain helped you with that? And, and do you think that you were naturally, people are naturally inclined to be good in that? Or is this something that is specific to some people that have better development in the brain? Well, how can you become fluent in a new language? You know, I think, of course, some people are more gifted than others. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, everybody can do it. Otherwise, uh, children wouldn't be able to learn to speak. You know, there would be some who never learn it. And though everyone learns it, it's in our brains. We have a built-in language learning system. And I think there's a couple of things you can do. So first of all, I never study grammar. Yeah. Why don't I study grammar? Children don't need grammar to learn to speak correctly. I think people get so focused on these rules of grammar and then they still can't speak a single sentence, you know, correctly. So I think it's more about developing intuition because your brain will do that work for you. Your brain is a pattern detection machine. So when you expose yourself to a language, your brain will intuitively pick up the rules of grammar and then you will develop an intuition. You will just think, hmm, this didn't sound right. You know, it didn't feel right. And that's your brain telling you that a grammar rule is violated. It's much more effective, though, to expose yourself to the language than to study the rules. What's your native language? I'm curious. 
sorry what is your native language your what were you oh i'm german i'm german so my native language is german and then what else do you speak i'm curious uh, english of course Uh as you can hear i spent some time in living in texas uh, when i was a high school student so i lived in the u.s so it's a memory i never you know an experience i'm immensely grateful for and really interesting and then i you know I moved to Sweden, so I lived in Sweden, but I knew Swedish before I moved there, so I felt like when I arrive, I want to be able to already communicate, and then I moved to Italy, so I learned Italian, and then when I was in Italy, I realized, you know, when you speak Italian, it's easy to also learn Spanish, so then I moved to Spain, and then I learned Spanish, and in school, you know, I learned French, and now my kids go to a French school, so I get to practice that daily, you know, by talking to the teacher. And, 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 you know, checking their homework sometimes. So um, I think for me, language learning is quite easy, but it's also that I actually studied how languages are processed in the brain. And I applied all of the things I learned in my studies to my own learning process. And I also worked as a language teacher when I was a student to support myself. So I tried it out on myself and on the others. Uh-huh. And, and I've, I actually have a full book ready in my head on how to learn a foreign language. It's just that my agent thinks, you know, my book agent mm-hmm. doesn't think there's a market for it because in, in the U.S., you know, people can get by with English and maybe some Spanish uh-huh. and there's not no real interest and need for such a book but I have it all ready in my head I'd like to read that because my daughter it just amazes me she speaks Portuguese um and then and Italian and Spanish once you get one of those they kind of you know makes it easier yeah uh but I I think that it's it's really impressive to see when people and do these things how hard is it is it the old dog new tricks thing true can is it very hard to teach an old dog new tricks so if i'm old no, okay. no of course that's not true we know from neuroplasticity you know that we can learn at any age i think what's hindering people is that idea that you can't learn when you're older and then they don't even try mm-hmm. so it's a bit um you know hindering mindset and then also we have to understand that kids they see it as a as a game you know as as a playful activity they have fun and and so as adults there's this idea that you can learn language by sitting down with a very boring irrelevant language learning book Mm -hmm. of course your brain is going to ignore that because it's so artificial and there's no emotional relevance and we know we learn best when we are emotionally involved when we feel passionate about what we're doing and of course every baby wants to understand his mother and his father and what his aunt is saying you know and what Mm -hmm. grandfather is talking so you know, as adults, we need to find a good reason why we learn languages. And I think when that reason is lacking, we have difficulties learning because our brain figures that it's not really important. Yeah, you know, I, I think that it, it, you know, there's a lot of apps and things that I think I like Duolingo for learning uh, new uh, languages, but there's a lot of different ways to help us that technology has been so great with that. And and I, um, I, I, I really love the work you do because it ties into just everything I study on curiosity and perception. And, and I think that there's so much we don't know about 
how the brain works. What, what's the most frustrating thing to you about the brain that we don't know? Is it like why we sleep? Is it, <laughs> yeah. you know, what the whole parts that we don't know? I mean, what, what is it that you would like to know more in terms of the brain? Okay, I have a very weird answer to that because, you know, sometimes I have personal questions that I try to figure out and that I can't find a solution to. And here is what I'm wondering about at the moment. It might be a bit weird um, <laughs> because it's not a big research topic, but, you know, the one thing that I really don't understand is, you know, when it comes to COVID, there's two camps. There's the people who say, you know, wear a mask. And there's those who say, don't, you know, uh -huh. you know what I mean? Right. I think you have them in the US, they're all right. over the world. And I wonder, why do some people fall into one camp rather than the other? I know that in the US, it's pretty much at the line of Democrats and Republicans. Right. And I don't want to get into your politics, because it seems very messy to me. I don't, yeah. you know, um, but in other countries in the world, it's not so political necessary. Uh -huh. So I've really been wondering, you know, because people really don't move a bit, you know, there's like no understanding, no common ground for the other, but there's a lot of conflict. It's really dividing society. And I'm thinking like, why do some people fall into one camp rather than the other? And I, I well, this is something I've been wondering about for a while now. That almost seems like religion to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. That people just will go with one direction and then there's there's blinders to anything else once it's that confirmation bias kind of thing don't you think yeah of course i just wonder like how you know could i run a cycle i would love for example here's a study i would love to do if i had the time maybe somebody listens and does it for me mm -hmm. um i'd love to test the people who are pro lockdown and the you know people who are against it and I would like to run a psychological test to see if there's you know are there any genetic differences is it something that some of them are more freedom lovers and the others are more safety lovers you know I I, I, I this is something that really that I, I wonder about a lot but it's not a big topic of course in terms of research topics it's just something that really puzzles me when I see that they, you know, on many topics, people at least discuss and agree and, you know, find common ground, you know, maybe some people like, like pasta and the others say, I prefer pizza. And, you know, they still like each other. Well, I still think it's more like the political, um, religious kind of yeah. voices. And, you know, I, I was interested in something very similar on when Myers-Briggs uh, was popular. I I did a little bit of my own personal research um, on if the T versus F dichotomy, the thinking versus mm -hmm. feeling dichotomy of Myers-Briggs, which was, you know, thinkers tend to make their decisions based on facts, figures, things like that. And then the feeling is much more on their values. So they make their decisions based on their values. So uh, to me, my, I was thinking, well, then the feelers probably were more likely to be religious maybe than the ones mm -hmm. that were thinkers. Mm -hmm. But every I, in all the research I did, I couldn't find any correlation. And so I, but I was looking, it's the same kind of thing. Why did this, why yeah. did this group go this way? I, 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 it sounds like we think <laughs> we want to know the same kinds of things. I'm in there with you completely on that. 
Yeah, I, it's just something that I, you know, I wish I could say, oh, they have identified a certain gene that, you know, the ones in this camp, they have this part of the brain region that's more active. And, you know, I just can't figure it out because it seems to go across intelligence I, I, levels I and social backgrounds. And, you know, of does. course, in the US, it's more political, but here in Germany, you know, people right. some people who are to the left will think like this some people are more to the right it's like completely it seems to me like it's a mess and but i i, I had a question for you on that because i think i yeah. saw something when i was doing that research and i had have to look back but wasn't there some research that showed there was some genetic component to whether you had faith or not yeah and yeah if there is you're having isn't faith kind of tied to whether you think you're going to die without the mask or not? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should look into that. But yeah. it just seems so it's, you know, we see a lot of very extreme behavior and beliefs at the moment. People, it's everything is so heated. Right. And of course, I understand it has to do, for example, you know, the very simple thing is, for example, when people are in fear, mm -hmm. oxytocin is released because you bond to those around you to protect yourselves and to con protect those around you against right. the, the, the um, you know, the danger. And then people go into camps, like you protect your family and your loved ones, and the others become the enemy. It's, wow. it's a very natural thing that we have that for example you see that with mothers oxytocin levels get high but you become a bit aggressive when somebody gets close to your baby and touches right, it right. you know you don't yeah. want that yeah. so in animals we can see that a lot that when love is highest aggression also soars so yeah. i think that's something we have at the moment that fear levels are high so you try to protect those you love and then the other people who are in the other camp, they become your enemy and then you have to combat them. So I think this explains why it's so heated and so the reaction is so strong. But I still don't understand why some people fall into one camp rather than the yeah, other. That's that would be something that I really would love to hear about if somebody finds out. Well, yeah, I'd like to do it too. <laughs> my, you know, my daughter told me yesterday, she's on this um, Facebook group where they share health tips of things that are working. And then there was one guy in the group who was always posting how ridiculous it was that people were wearing masks and, you know, and that it's a scam and whatever he, and then he, as she said, he ended up dying from catching COVID. And so you, you wonder, <laughs> you know, what it takes for somebody's mind to change. You know what I mean? Sometimes it, it, it's something like that that would change it maybe you just absolutely have to go through the experience you have a certain brain um i don't know you'd be the expert yeah, yeah. i don't know i don't know <laughs> so that's also a thing that it's very hard to change our minds once you're convinced you only look at evidence that supports right. that of course so uh, yeah. um, it, as you said confirmation bias and and changing your mind is very difficult i think it happens very often when somebody whom you really trust and like discusses with you. I think we have a hard time accepting feedback from strangers who don't have our best interests at heart. Right. So, you know, if I go on the street and I say to somebody that I don't know and lecture that person about COVID, <laughs> I, I think that's going to be a difficult conversation. Oh, yeah. But if I talk to somebody I love who's close to me, then maybe there, I think there's a higher chance that people would listen.
So, you know, in, when it comes to feedback, um, yeah. intention matters. I think I have, you know, if I, people always ask me, you know, how can we give better feedback or how can we have these difficult conversations? And I think it's all about intentions. People can sense whether you mean well with your feedback, whether you really want to improve that person and help that person and see the potential in that person, or whether you just want to kind of criticize and put down that, you know, like, right. And, and I think that makes all the difference, whether you're trying to help that person thrive or whether you're just trying to punish somebody for bad behavior. Well, it, it is a time that uh, there's so much focus on all the ways that people behave and, and it's just a crazy time. And, and that's why I thought it was really interesting to talk about brain and neuroscience. Um, and and in, the, in our last couple minutes, I, I wanted, since we've talked so much about the brain, there's so much gut brain discussions and how much did it make you want to start studying the, the gut or the stomach <laughs> or, or, you know, after you started to see the connections uh -huh. to that, did, do you go into that direction at all? A little bit. I, I know there's a very strong brain-gut connection, and mm -hmm. I think the microbiome is extremely interesting, and I think there's going to be an explosion of research in that area in the upcoming decade, because we're only at the very beginning, you know, the bacteria and how they influence our health and even our mental state. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not an expert on gut health, and you know, but I do think that nutrition, of course, makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, we should all think about getting enough um, probiotics and prebiotics so that our gut health is, is in a good state because that really can influence our entire health and well-being. Yeah. People didn't know that 10 years ago. It's, it's really interesting. My husband's a physician, so I get to uh, hear a lot about that from him. And I've had... Uh, Naveen Jane's on the show. He, he's been on the show about biome uh, is his company that deals with that. But uh, I, I really think, you know, it's just a discussion that comes up when you talk about the brain. And, and I think that everything you're working on is so fascinating. And I really enjoy this conversation. And I think a lot of people are going to want to get your book or follow you. Uh, is there a way to, to reach you that you want to share or a, a website or Anything you'd like to share? Yeah. So so my website is fabulous-brain.com. So fabulousbrain.com, but with a dash in the middle. And, you know, I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, very, you know, my name is very hard to spell, you know. <laughs> so that's why I, um, I have this website called fabulousbrain.com because I thought if I tell people to go to my website, which is my name, nobody will find me. Right. So I want people to find me. I have that. And then, you know, um, I love, I, I'm most active on LinkedIn, I would say, because it's a business platform. Lots of my clients are there, but. Yeah, me too. I, yeah. I agree. Well, this was really interesting. Thank you so much for doing the show. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for making it such a fun experience. I think we have so much in common, shared interests. So I, I really enjoyed this. Well, I think Cosmo too. We <laughs> <And then laughs> will be back right after this message. Do you know someone who might benefit from taking the Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The CCI is the first and only assessment that determines the factors that inhibit curiosity. It's simple. 
If you recommend the assessment to someone else, you can receive 20% of the purchase price that they pay when they take the CCI through the link provided by you. To obtain the link and become an affiliate, please go to drdianehamilton.com forward slash affiliate. Well, I really like to thank Frederica for being my guest today. We get so many great guests on this show, and uh, I'd love it when we get into any of the uh, just the psychological brain related type discussions. I mean, her work was so fascinating to me. Uh, we've had a lot of great psychologists on the show like Albert Bandura and others. And, and every time I get to speak to any of these individuals who do this amazing research, it's always so inspiring because I think it's really important to understand behaviors. We know that people are hired for their uh, knowledge and fired for their behaviors. And if we could figure out what makes all these things make us tick and uh, what makes us uh, interested in certain things and not interested in others. It all ties into my interest in curiosity. And so I studied some of the psychological aspects uh, involved with curiosity, found that curiosity actually increases uh, dopamine, which is the feel good chemical and we all wanna feel good. And uh, did see that uh, people were living longer. There was a lot of benefits to improving curiosity. I always have leaders ask me about you know what are the benefits to improving curiosity in the workplace and we know it ties into engagement innovation productivity and a lot of that but there's also the health related uh aspects that we were talking about here but uh, i think for true understanding of behaviors in the workplace we have to learn more about the brain and our chemicals of how they impact us and uh, loved all of our discussions today about that I, I would like to see more research done. If anybody is listening to this and they do research in the area of innovation or engagement, I, I think that there's just there's some great content out there. I know that Francesca Gino's research in HBR is really great uh, to show connections between productivity and improving uh, curiosity. But I'd like to see more. Um, I, I think that it, it it's kind of common sense if you think about it of uh, if you light the spark, uh, you're going to in include things like innovative ideas and uh, more uh, engagement if people are interested to look into things. So there's some of it that's, there's a lot of anecdotal stories and a lot of them are in my book, Cracking the Curiosity Code. And when I give talks, I also give a lot of anecdotal stories, uh, but I'd, I'd love to see more research done because I really think that there's so much behind that kicking in of the dopamine and how that makes you feel good and that'll improve performance and everything else. So um, I, I think that there's a lot that uh, you can find on my site. If you go to developcuriosity.com uh, or just go to the drdianehamilton.com site, you can find the free courses and different things uh, that I offer. If you don't see a drop-down menu of what you're looking for, make sure you scroll down to the bottom of the page because we do have a lot of information down there, testimonials, a lot of other things that uh, you can't have every menu item at the top. So make sure you look at the bottom for some of that. And uh, take some time to explore the site. I, I, I think we have so much great information about you know the importance of developing curiosity, but I think if you take the Curiosity Code Index, you can really find out the four factors that inhibit curiosity which are fear, assumptions, technology, and environment. But it's a 36-question assessment that'll give you 
that that feedback. Um, also on the site is the Perception Power Index, which will give you a combination of IQ, EQ, CQ for curiosity, and CQ for cultural quotients, pretty much, and the PQ, your perception quotient. You could find out how perception is an epic process. You're evaluating, predicting, interpreting, and correlating to make these conclusions, and how we perceive others is huge in the workplace. So. I um, hope you take time uh, to, to look at all this stuff on the site. And uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode because I, I know I did. And I hope you enjoy the next episode and join us for the next episode of Take the Lead Radio. You've been listening to Take the Lead with Dr. Diane Hamilton on C-Suite Radio.